Today we continue with our series on faith over fear. And so far we've had the introductory sermon, then we've had Gary talking about faith over fear of the unknown, and then we've had Ian talking about faith over the fear of generous giving. And today we're looking at faith over fear of doubt. Now, there's a very strong relationship between faith and doubt. They're they're opposites. Faith is hoping that something we believe in is going to happen. Doubt is not believing that something we hope will happen will happen. All of us struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Doubt is a very natural reaction in many of us, but it's something which the Bible encourages, encourages us to overcome. The Bible teaches us not to doubt, but instead to have faith. If we have faith, then doubt becomes eradicated. If doubt is the most powerful um, response that we have to a challenge, then our faith doesn't do much to help us overcome that challenge. Put simply, if we believe our doubt, then we doubt our beliefs. Now the Bible teaches us to make sure that we don't allow that to become true for us. Now when Ian and Gary and myself sat down and started planning what the different uh, sermon titles would be, um, Gary thought it was highly amusing when I was given the subject of faith over doubt because he said, oh, Doubting Thomas, that's perfect for you. And I'd like to begin this morning by looking at Doubting Thomas because actually I always feel, not just because he's my namesake, I don't think that's the reason, but I always feel that Thomas the disciple gets a very rough deal, a very bad press in that particular story. So turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20. Starting at verse 19, we read these words. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So that's an account of what all the disciples, except for Thomas, experienced that first time when Jesus came into their midst through the the, the locked doors, through the solid walls, and presented himself in front of them that night. Thomas wasn't there. What happened that night? Let's just be clear. They are in a room. It's, uh, the doors are locked. It's solid walls. And they are, they are secured in a room for fear of the Jews. They've made sure there is no way that anyone that wanted to attack them and, and crucify them or, 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 or imprison them, there's no way that they can be got at. So this is a secure room. Miraculously, Jesus appears amongst them. We don't know what their reaction was. John doesn't tell us that. We don't know if there was doubt, if there was, if there was fear, if there was a sudden screaming of, um, because they thought there was a ghost in their midst. What we do know is that Jesus very quickly gives them the evidence that they needed to believe that he was the risen Christ. 
it says, doesn't it? John tells us, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And only then are the disciples overjoyed because they recognise that they're seeing the Lord. So Thomas wasn't there. He doesn't see his hands. He doesn't see his side. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. In other words, he says, unless I see the evidence you've seen, I won't believe it. So let's go easy on the guy, doubting Thomas. He's not doubting, he's just a man of integrity. He's not going to take someone else's word for it. Instead, he's not going to establish his own faith on, on weak foundations. He's going to build his faith on the solid foundations of truth and fact. He wants to see the evidence rather than just believe what others have passed on. So actually, I think that Thomas is a man of integrity rather than a man lacking in faith. It's only natural, isn't it, to have doubts. When I was first exploring faith, I had many, many, many doubts. I doubted there was a God. I doubted that anything in scripture was true. And it took a long time of, of reading the scriptures, of challenging some of the teachings of Jesus, of, of talking with Christian friends that, I'd, that I made through, through the church that Joe and I started attending, through prayer and seeing answers to prayer and recognising God working in the world around me. It was through this process that I began to establish the solid foundations on which I could start to build my faith. If we don't do this, then we find that our faith is pretty weak is pretty hollow as soon as we come across a, a, an obstacle in life a stumbling block we find that our faith doesn't help us over it but instead our faith um, is one of the first things that we abandon as we try to deal with the problem ourselves doubt is a very natural feeling but doubt is also a spiritual response when Paul, in Ephesians 6, talks about the armour of God, he talks about the fiery arrows that the enemy throws at us. Now, some of you might be aware that over the past few weeks, Kingdom Kids have been doing a great series on the armour of God. Charlotte's done some fantastic sessions uh, looking at all the different as aspects of the armour of God, and I've done a couple of less fantastic ones. But they've been really interesting because they remind us of, of what the armour of God actually is. Now, when we look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see in verse 16, he says, in addition to all this, in addition to all the other items, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon that he, he preached at Westminster Chapel, identified the flaming arrows as being the doubts that Satan hurls at us on a regular basis. He says that doubt is one of the most subtle and yet one of the most dangerous weapons that the enemy uses against us. Doubt can seem quite innocuous when it first gets hurled at us, but once we allow it to, to embed itself in us, if we don't have a shield of faith to protect ourselves, 
then that doubt can very quickly become very, very damaging. Now, thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say on the subject of doubt. Indeed, every subject that we discuss, we find that the Bible has something to teach us because God's word is just as alive and relevant and active today as it always has been. One of the characters that I've learned about a lot while preparing for this sermon is a man named Asaph. Now, some of you might recognise that name, but I suspect that many of us won't be particularly familiar with Asaph. Asaph was a priest, and in the Book of Chronicles, we learn that he was quite an important priest. He was appointed as the chief priest ministering before the Ark of the Covenant to the people of Israel. Now, that's quite an important role. That is a role which, um, which would have carried a lot of status, and that is a role which meant that he was a particularly faithful, holy, godly man. And yet, Asaph wrote some psalms, and in the psalms he's brutally honest about his struggle with doubt. Listen to these words from Psalm 77. My heart mused and my spirit inquired, Will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? These are questions that Asaph lists in one of the Psalms that he wrote. These are questions. Where is God? What is going on? This is at a time when the Israelites had been, had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. This was at a time when, when Jerusalem had been ransacked, when, when as far as the Jews were concerned, the whole the whole of their life, the whole livelihood, their whole culture was at risk. And Asaph, one of the spiritual leaders of the day, one of the, one of the most senior priests, was questioning God. He didn't know the answers to these questions. His doubt was rife, his faith was challenged. I know that many Christians today go through similar sorts of struggles. When times get tough, when we lose our job, when our house gets repossessed, when we can't afford the rent, or maybe when our child gets expelled, or maybe when we've got a court case coming up, or maybe when we've got another speeding ticket and we know we're about to lose our licence, or maybe when we've had one drink too many and, and said something we shouldn't have said, whatever it might be. When, when, our, when our relationships are failing, when our addictions are getting the better of us, when we're really struggling with, with whatever we might be struggling with in life, and we say, Lord, where are you? Why am, I, why am I being treated like this? Why can't I deal with this? We're in good company. Even Asaph himself. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Asaph again. In, in Psalm 73, another psalm that he wrote when he was struggling. This one isn't about where is God in the world. It's more about I'm a faithful person. Why is it that there's so many things where I look around me and I see people who, who, who are non-believers who seem to have it much better than me. People who don't keep God's law, people who don't honour God with their lives, 
they seem to have a much, much more comfortable existence than I do. Listen to what he says. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree as they increase in wealth. So here we see Asaph, this, this senior priest, looking around and saying, I'm struggling with health. Other people, far less godly than me, have got good health. They're strong, they're growing, they're affluent. They've got all these material possessions, they're popular. And here am I. Here am I, a poorly, sickly, weak, doubting outcast. His doubts threaten to overtake him. And as the psalm goes on, he then, he then reflects and says, actually, things aren't so bad. I've got God. And he, he looks and he's, he, he, he reminds himself of his knowledge of God. And he uses that to lift his spirits and build himself up. So when we read those psalms as a whole, they're actually quite encouraging. But we mustn't, we mustn't forget that they were written from a very low place. They were written with brutal honesty about what can happen if we don't win the battle against doubt. Doubt is nothing new. We can go back to Asaph and we can even go back even further to see the danger of doubt. Indeed, we can go all the way back to the dawn of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, just after God has created the, the heavens and the earth and the universe and all the living things on it and all the plants and trees and then eventually created mankind, in Genesis chapter 3, we read these words. Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I'm not going to go on with that passage because that there, that is it, isn't it? That is the, the seemingly innocuous arrow that is fired into Adam and Eve. That question. Did God really say that? It's open-ended. It seems like an innocent question. A question could be met with an answer. Yeah, he did. End of story. But it's that doubt that gets planted in Eve's mind and grows and takes, takes root and eventually takes over and pretty quickly Adam and Eve find themselves hiding from God and it all begins to unravel from there. All because that doubt was allowed to penetrate. Now, we started looking at Ephesians 6 and the armour of God. And in the armour of God, as we said, Paul talks about the importance of taking up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, when Paul describes the armour of God, he's, he's, he's using the image of a Roman soldier. All the different aspects, all the different items that he talks about are typical of, of a Roman soldier that he and um, the, the people in Ephesus would have been familiar with seeing on the streets every day. But the shield of faith is an interesting one because where he says, the sh- take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. There are two key words in that passage. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, as many of you know, but I do think that sometimes it's really important to go back to the original Greek or Hebrew and try and learn what we can, even if we're not experts in the field, by looking at the language that was used. Now, in this passage, in this, in this sentence, the word that Paul uses for arrows is belos. Now, belos is used to describe a particular type of arrow. It was an arrow which was fairly common in, in warfare. The Romans were um, uh, used to um, be on the receiving end of these, these, these types of arrows. What they were, they were quite long arrows and the shaft was hollowed out. And in the shaft, a flammable liquid was, was stored. And so when the arrow was fired, when, the, when it, when it um, impacted whatever it was that it hit it created a tiny spark, a bit like when you flick a light switch. And that tiny spark was enough to ignite the flammable liquid. And so when you had a hundred of these arrows raining down upon a body of troops, every time they hit a shield, they burst into flame. Now the Romans had these great big rectangular shields that, that you could stand behind and be pretty much completely, completely shielded. Normal arrows would just hit the, hit the shield and stick in and they wouldn't affect the soldier. But if you had a great long line of, of soldiers holding shields to the front and over the top as well, so they were completely covered, and they kept on being hit by these bellos, these flaming arrows, then what would happen eventually is that the dry wood of the shields would catch light. And the soldiers inside had a choice. They could either roast inside what became like a massive oven or they could drop their shields and run. These flaming arrows were a very real threat to the Roman soldiers at the time. And so what they started doing, what they started doing to repel these flaming arrows, before battle, they would take their great big wooden shields the night before a battle and they would put them in water and they would leave them there overnight so that the water um, absorbed, sorry, the shield absorbed a huge amount of water. And so when actually went into battle and these bellows were fired at them, these flaming arrows fired at them. The water in the shield stopped the wood from burning, stopped the shield from burning. And so the flaming arrows became um, ineffective. So when Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the word for extinguish is sometimes translated quench, and it's a Greek word which, which meant doused with water, saturate with water, extinguish with water. And so what Paul is actually referencing here is a very common battle tactic. Soak your, soak your shield in water so that when the enemy fire these flaming arrows, the water extinguishes the threat. So that's the practical explanation of what Paul is saying here. But there's a spiritual explanation as well. 
in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Paul talks about the word of God as water, a water that cleanses us, a water that we can immerse ourselves in, a water that, that washes away any impurity. He says we should, we should use God's word, immerse ourselves in God's word to, to wash ourselves, to cleanse ourselves. Our shield of faith needs to be immersed in God's word so that when the flaming arrows of Satan are fired at us, they don't take hold and, and set fire to our faith and show our faith to be nothing but, but flimsy, flimsy firewood that burns up and disappears and becomes useless whenever we, whenever we have these doubts fired at us. But instead, instead, our faith should be, should be doused, should be saturated on a regular basis in the water of the word of God. So that when these flaming arrows are fired at us, our shield of faith does its job. It repels the attack of the evil one so that we can stand firm in our faith. So that's Paul's, that's Paul's message to us. We all have faith. We wouldn't be watching this sermon if we didn't have some sort of faith. But if our faith is just a, based upon turning up to church on a Sunday morning and, and going through the, the routine of, of singing songs, and if the only prayer that we, that we do during the week is saying amen at the end of the sermon, or if, if the only worship that we give to God is when the band strike up a tune, or, or if the only Christian fellowship we have is over tea and a biscuit at the end of the service, then that's, a, that's built on pretty shaky foundations. That sort of faith is not going to it's not going to defend us from those flaming arrows that get hurled at us when we wake up in the middle of the night with all these things on our mind, all our worries and fears and doubts creeping in. This is why it's so important that our faith is part of us, that our faith is, is, is embedded into our daily routine, that reading the scriptures, that knowing the Bible, that, that interacting with God through prayer, through his word, through meditation, through study, through understanding, is absolutely vital to establishing our faith on solid, firm foundations, on making sure that any flaming arrows that are fired at us are not going to eat up our faith and burn it away, but instead are going to be doused because the word of God, the word of God extinguishes them. You see, when Thomas, the disciple, eventually saw Jesus, he has his opportunity. When Jesus comes face to face with Thomas, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See the holes in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas got it absolutely right. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who wanted to make sure that, that his faith was based on absolutely rock-solid foundations. He wanted the evidence that the others had seen. And we should all make sure that we, we strive for evidence. Of course, 
faith is based on on believing what we can't see but Jesus sums it up when he says to Thomas because you've seen me you've believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed we haven't seen Jesus face to face but we have seen him around us we have seen his work in the world around us it's so important that we familiarise ourselves with, with how God talks to us, with how God works in the world around us, by seeing what he's done in the past, by seeing the way that he's blessed his people and then recognising the blessings that he bestows upon us today. When I was at college, one of the things I loved studying was the, um, the archaeology, the archaeological evidence for the Bible and there's loads of it you've only got to go up to London to the British Museum and you can see scores and scores of artefacts that back up biblical stories biblical narratives I remember there was a lecturer at Spurgeon's College called Peter Lalleman um, a Dutch guy who's been who's been lecturing there for many many years and he said he said when he started lecturing at Spurgeon's College in the early 90s no serious scholar secular scholar believed that there had ever been a King David because there was no evidence for it and then one summer there was a dig um, an archaeological dig out in in the Middle East somewhere and they discovered a stone from um, from the right sort of period of history which referred to the house of David and then in the next couple of years around a similar sort of area there were several other finds which spoke of, of a King David, a house of David, a dynasty of David. And he said now, he said, no secular scholar seriously doubts that there was ever a King David. King David has become widely recognised as a, as, a, as a truthful, a factual element of history. He said no, no scholar doubts it because the evidence was found. Our job as Christians is to be digging for evidence all the time. We shouldn't be afraid of challenging our faith. We shouldn't be afraid of asking the questions. Just like we see with Asaph in his Psalms, he wasn't afraid to, to be honest about the doubt that he felt, to ask the questions that he had to answer. But the most important thing is that we don't let the doubt win, that we make sure that our faith grows and grows and grows. When, when the enemy fires the fiery arrows of doubt into us, we have the shield of faith that can absorb it, can repel it, can douse it and extinguish it because we have dug and dug and dug to find the evidence upon which our faith is based, which forms the foundations upon which we can stand. And if we do that, then nothing will shake us from our faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that whatever situation we find ourselves in in this life, you've given us clear guidance to deal with it. Father, forgive us for the time when we allow doubt to overcome our faith and help us, Lord, to reverse that process. Father, help us to have the confidence to challenge our faith, to, to teach ourselves more and more about you, to grow in our relationship with you and to make sure that whenever we come under any sort of attack, any sort of spiritual attack, when those fiery arrows are being, are being fired at us. Father God, may we have a faith which is strong enough, robust enough to absorb every arrow and to extinguish it. Father, help us to do this 
Help us to stand firm. Father, this week we don't know what lies ahead, but you do. You know all the flaming arrows that might be fired our way. You know all the doubts that might be thrown at us. But you also know that you have equipped us, you have empowered us with everything we need to overcome those doubts. So Father, may we be be bold in our faith. May we be strong and steadfast in the way that we live our lives. And may we honour you now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope that's been helpful. And I hope that you have a wonderful week where your faith overcomes any fear of doubt.